Have you ever wanted something to be true so badly that you find the lack of proof either infuriating or almost irrelevant? For many scientists, the index case is British physicist Paul Dirac's magnetic monopole theory. It's a beautiful concept that ties up some irritating loose ends, and which comes from a man whose theories have for the most part been scientific home runs, but which so far remains completely unproven. But everyone loves a good prediction, right? And efforts to find the elusive monopole have been ongoing since practically day one, with sometimes tantalizing, though ultimately disappointing, results. So will the latest experiment being run at the Large Hadron Collider prove to be successful where so many have failed? The only thing that seems certain is that we won't know the answer to that today. So here's to Paul Dirac's most elusive brainchild, the magnetic monopole. From Montreal, Quebec, I'm Jesse Corbet. And from Cambridge, Mass, I'm Orad Reshef. And you're listening to yet another science show, episode 3, Paul Dirac and the Magnetic Monopole. Today on the program, we'll be talking about magnetic monopoles and their history. What are they? Why do we care? Where are they from? Do they exist? Where they come from? All that jazz. But before we can really get into that, we have to discuss Paul Dirac, who is the hero of our story. Oh, Paul Dirac. Good old Paul. Yeah, I mean, he's he's pretty big. He's got, like, the Dirac equation. He's come up with all sorts of stuff. Uh, he's got uh, a Nobel Prize, obviously. He's got right? a few prizes. He's got, um, I counted up, and I think I counted, like, 20 things that his <laughs> name is on or that he gave us in some way. You know, okay. it's not just the Dirac. The, uh, yeah, so, the so tell me about it. So, uh, you know, where's he come from? What's the story? Uh, well, born in the UK in, uh, I think it was 1902. He's the son of a Swiss man. In fact, uh, the entire family, well, aside from his mother, his mother was British. His father and he and I think his two siblings all had Swiss citizenship for the first part of his life, and then they became naturalized. But what's interesting is that uh, his father would only speak to him and his kids in French, and his mother would only speak to them in English, which, in a place where I live, is not actually that bizarre you know <laughs> it's true yeah um, it's true. but his father was also kind of a disciplinarian uh, he wasn't into corporal punishment he was into sort of more um like emotional punishment i guess and like every night by I, emotionally how do you emotionally punish someone well like okay at supper paul Dirac's father and he would sit at the table in one room in the front of the house and the mother and other siblings would sit in the kitchen. And throughout supper, his father would speak to him. And every time Paul made a mistake in French or something factual, uh, his father would punish him by apparently denying him whatever he wanted next. So maybe he couldn't go to the bathroom or he couldn't have dessert or, or, or whatever. Um, but w what it did was, I mean, um, Paul decided that, you know, if, if it was too much trouble to, to speak and maybe make a mistake, it's best to just remain silent. And and he remains silent for most of his life. I mean, he was a taciturn guy. Uh, I think I'll take a second to say, like, P Paul Dirac is known for being pretty terse. So he's also known for being economical, like, in equations and in just concepts in general. Like, if he could do something shorter or fewer words or letters or something, he would. Like, he, he was good at that. Yeah. In fact, there was one quote about him. Um, his biographer, Graham Farmello, said in a talk in Toronto that uh, Dirac never used one word where none would do. <laughs> but Actually, can I, can I relate to you? Uh, I was taking a, uh, uh, I think it was like a relativity class. Okay. And, uh, and our, our prof recommended we, we read the Dirac book. He said, Dirac wrote a book on relativity. It's the greatest there is. You should read it, even though it was written, you know, 80 years ago. Okay. And he said, it's only 18 pages. 
but you should, <laughs> but it's really dense and you should read it. And apparently every sentence in the textbook is really, really dense. It is pure gold. Yeah, yeah. So I'm not surprised at all. Like he was trained like this by his father. That makes sense to me. Well, you know, the thing is he was trained, but also in reading up on this guy, Asperger's syndrome kept coming up. Oh, is that true? Yeah. Some say he was autistic. Some say he and his dad were both. Um, it sort of explains why he was such an awkward guy. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a miracle that he ended up married with kids in some ways, you know. But one of the results of this is that, I mean, he was, he was very practically minded. You know, he, he, was, he was an ardent atheist in his early life. He didn't see the, the use of philosophy or of poetry. And he studied engineering at first. He got a, an engineering degree in 1921. Wow. look at that. You know, uh, he got a second degree in math in 1923, you know. I mean, he was like a first-class honors both times, got a scholarship to, to Cambridge, Right, which which is where he got into general relativity and quantum physics and, and stuff under uh, Ralph Fowler, who I guess was a big name. I but you know anyway, boom, PhD in nineteen twenty six. Wow, you know? in three years. Yeah, so oh, I mean that's me now. That's that's me, <laughs> right? Like I'm right. I'm not in a PhD state. Oh man. Well, and, and you know it's funny. Nineteen twenty six, right? He gets his PhD. It's the same year that he published a paper that sort of set the groundwork for quantum mechanics, right? Wow. Um, it was sort of based on the concepts of Werner Heisenberg uh -huh. and Erwin Schrödinger. Uh-huh. On, on, like, the wave mechanics of Schrödinger. Sure. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, and he's just, he's on a roll. 28 is the Dirac equation, right? Oh, yeah. That's where, like... Einstein's theory of relativity brings it together with quantum theory. Uh, it points towards the electron, why it's got spin, antimatter. I mean, you probably know more about this than I do. Yeah, the Dirac equation, it's an equation that puts special relativity together. It kind of explains how relativistic electrons would go, for example, right? So if you have an electron going really fast, this is the equation you'd use to figure out its momentum and stuff. But uh, I thought this was interesting because remember last week we talked about black holes. We talked also about white holes. Yeah. Uh, we went for a five-minute tangent on white holes. We talked about how the white hole solution is a mathematical artifact in that if you take a square root of a number, you have a positive and a negative. Yeah. Um, and, and the white hole is the negative. For example, right? And, and last week yeah. I was using that as an analogy, but this week this is literally what it is. If you take a square root, you will get a positive and a negative. And in this case, the negative actually means antimatter. Right. So it talks about, for example, positrons and anti-protons, you know, protons, anti-everything. Right. That... Uh, so this is him actually predicting the positron in the way. This is, this is how he did that. Yeah, and in fact, in 1931, he does that. He, you know, he comes up with the positron, right, which is an anti-electron. And just so for people who don't know, uh, a positron, any any antimatter thing, it's just you take a particle and it's identical to that particle in every way, except it has the opposite charge. It's so the same mass. A positron is an anti-electron in a way. But and the interesting yeah. thing, if you take a positron and it collides with an anti-electron, then they annihilate. And this was uh, a plot point in Dan Brown's Angels and Demons <laughs> was it? Yeah, yeah, they had a positron bomb. They had, you know, 10 grams of antimatter. And they were like, antimatter? If that collides into anything, it'll be the worst bomb ever. And that was his big plot point. 
You know what's funny about that? Um, when I was listening to the Graham Farmello uh, talk in Toronto, he referenced Dan Brown. It, when he was talking about this, he said, you know, anyone who's read Dan Brown will know what I'm talking about. I don't know oh. what... I had no idea because I haven't read Dan Brown, but like half the audience was sort of like giggling. Oh, yeah. So. <laughs> and they, and half, that, half that book takes place at the LHC in CERN as well. So Okay. All right. Yeah. Good yeah to you know. should read it, man. I, I only got two thirds of the way through, so I actually don't know the ending. <laughs> actually, uh, I think uh, I borrowed the book from a friend who's a listener so he's gonna write in and he's complain gonna, like, about it i think yeah i've had it for like five years <laughs> i've read two-thirds that's like damning the book with faint praise you know but oh, you know man. positron electron you know in 1930 he published uh, his textbook the principles of quantum mechanics mm-hmm. thing is look at this guy's age he was born in i think 1902 oh man you do the math 1930 publishes a textbook that's still in use today <laughs> it's it's important to realize here this guy's this guy's bright I don't mean run-of-the-mill genius bright. I don't mean like, you know, Brian Cox bright or or Phil Plate. I mean like Einstein bright. I mean, he's practically Isaac Newton bright. Hey, that's what we're talking about, him, buddy. You know, it's it's like the more I read about this guy, and like whenever I'm reading about science, I, I can't figure out any of the equations, right? So it's like I'm only there for the punchlines. You know, like when I'm reading about this guy, I'm not getting the fundamentals no, I'm getting the fundamentals of what he's coming up with and dealing with, but I'm not getting the um, the nuance of it. So uh, it's just like through the, the vast numbers of things that he's done that I realize this guy was very, very important. And like he should be more famous than he was. Do you know what I'm saying? I think he's pretty famous. I... I don't know. I listening to the last episode, I spent a lot of time saying famous physicist this guy, famous physicist that guy. Uh Dirac is up there. I I don't think anyone in physics doesn't know who he is. Uh I don't know that he was a pop culture figure the way Einstein, right? Yeah. was and or I... the way Feynman was. Feynman was a very big personality. Uh, and there are many people who rival Feynman's intelligence who aren't as well known as he is simply because they aren't as good speakers. And if, you know, if Dirac was, as you say, if he had, uh, was autistic or had, you know, had Asperger's, uh, totally makes sense why he isn't as big of a personality. Yeah. Yeah. I, he just, he didn't, I guess he just didn't present as well as other guys, but I sort of get the feeling that, you know, if Dirac, then Feynman or like then Dyson, you know what I'm saying? Like, I, I feel that a lot of what these guys were doing kind of points back to him. And I, I don't know if that's right, because as I said, I, my scientific literacy is much lower than, you know, your run-of-the-mill physicists. Um, you know, it could be. It's He was part of that generation, right? He was part of he, the Niels Bohr, Einstein yeah. generation. Uh, they say physics comes in waves of generations, as in when you grow up, the people you hear about, that that think about how quantum mechanics to Niels Bohr was so awkward right but to Feynman it's part of the fabric so he's just okay with it yeah so he he Dirac is one of the founding fathers in a way he comes he's pretty early in the story so yeah that that's what I mean that's yeah yeah actually it's funny that we're mentioning him and and Feynman because here's another thing is that Dirac was all about beautiful math right I mean one of one of his his foundations is you know if if your equation is beautiful and it's tight then it's got to be right. And if your equation is ugly and sloppy and all this, then chances are you're wrong. And I think Feynman is kind of the opposite in that no matter how great your equation is, if it doesn't stand up to um, to like experiment, then it's wrong. Jesse, you're completely right. That's exactly true. Yeah, uh, Feynman was more, you know, I don't care if you don't like it. 
I don't care if you think it's ugly. That's what it is. Yeah. You know, he was very hard and fast about that. Yeah. And and Dirac was maybe probably not. I'd say Einstein would be the first guy to say if it's if it's beautiful, it must be true. But Dirac was definitely a strong believer it, in that. Yeah, he definitely took it uh, took it to heart. You know. Right. So uh, positrons. So he predicts the positrons, and then they're discovered. That's a home run for him. Well, especially because. Um, his discovery of the positron was kind of ignored at first, right? I wasn't there. I don't know, but I think so. Yeah. Um, <laughs> what I got from the talk was he was ignored at first and then, um, they were discovered like in, in an experiment and then he was proven to be right. Right. And, I, uh, you know, the, uh, the positron experiment is so beautiful. Uh, let's tease that for another episode. Guys, listen to the positron experiment. YouTube that. You can, you should look it up. It is, it is really, really cool. And, and oh, I, it, it really, the positron is, is a very big mind blower in a way because it hints to an entire family of antimatter like that happened and everybody said whoa we only know half the story yeah. it's crazy and so in, that was a, such a home run in every every definition of the word and by the way 1931 right he's still on his role 1931 he also wrote his paper on the magnetic monopoles right the topic of today's episode exactly and, uh maybe we should back up and talk about what magnetic monopoles are i um, yes I think, you know, everybody knows what a magnetic dipole is. So any magnet is a dipole. And if you think about any magnet you've ever held, it has two poles, right? The north one and the south yeah, one. But I mean, I, everyone knows what they are, but not everyone really knows to use the term dipole, you know? Yeah, like, dipole is a fancy physics word, I yeah, guess. Yeah, you know, because like when I was growing up with like those little U-shaped magnets, I knew that, you know, this side pushes, this side pulls. But you don't tend to think of these things with the terms, if you're not coming up in the scientific sort of community. Yeah, you know. the uh, the dipole expansion, the multipole expansion is, uh, is a topic you'll learn when you're taking electricity and magnetism. You know, it goes up from there, actually. It goes uh, monopole, dipole, quadrupole, right? It goes up and up. And all it means is the number of poles you have attached. And uh, it's not so complicated to think about. If I were to give you a magnet and I could somehow detach the north pole from the south pole, each one of those individually would be a monopole, and that would be it. You'd be done. And Except that if you just chop the magnet in half, you just end up with two yeah, dipoles. that is right. That is the problem. The first guy to figure this out was Coulomb. Um, we know that the unit of charge is known as the Coulomb today, so it's named after him. Uh, I found the original paper that he published back in the 1790s about how he couldn't split the poles into two. It's written in French, and it's very clear because... Back then, they didn't have, I guess, you know, the vocabulary, the big high-minded scientific vocabulary of today, right? Right. And actually, uh, I think it's published in 1793 because it was published in the second year of the Republic. So this kind of brings us back to our first topic in our first episode about the French Republican calendar. <laughs> yeah. Nicely done. Yeah. So uh, we're going to put a link, a link to this in the show notes. Um, this is legal and free and everything. Everyone should just give it a look because it's pretty cool history. But Coulomb was the first guy to say you couldn't separate a pole into two. And it, was, it took until Ampere to realize that the reason you can't split it into two is because all of these poles are due to tiny microscopic atomic currents. So you can create a magnetic field and a magnetic dipole, no problem, by taking a current and putting it in a circle. Like any everyday electric current, like, you know, uh, an amp, right? You yeah. put that in a, in a loop. And then out of one side of the loop, like in the face of the loop, you'll have a, a north pole and then on the other side of the south pole. And if you think about it, there's no way you can split a loop in a way, right? If you think of it like a quarter, if you were to split the quarter lengthwise in the middle, you'd still have two faces where you have one north and one south. So that is Ampere's model, which perfectly explains why you can't separate the dipole into a single 
monopoles if the dipoles are due to these currents. Well, it's funny because I'm just I'm just looking at the uh, Wikipedia page for um for the monopole here. Uh huh. And and I'm looking at the um there's a graphic of these electric dipoles, and I'm struck by how much it looks like you know if you look at the magnetic map of the Earth. That's right. Yeah, like it's exactly field. the same thing. Exactly, Jess. It's exactly the same yeah. thing. Yeah, because the the Earth is a magnetic dipole as well. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Whoa! Uh, everything is tied together. So cool. And, um, <laughs> and yet, and yet, there's what I found interesting about this is that there's there's a demarcation point. Dirac is kind of the demarcation point, right? Because he's the quantum guy. Yeah. And and before him, right, you've got like Ampere and you've got Coulomb, mm-hmm. and further back, you know, the the ancients thought that magnetism was like there were two fluids, right? A, a, a positive. The ancients being like the ancient Greeks and stuff. Yeah, yeah, they all thought you know, that. People far enough back, and um, I found a an article in the May fifth, two thousand ten, uh, CERN Courier, written by um, just let me check his name, James Pinfold from the University of Alberta. He's the spokesperson for the magnetic monopole experiment that's going on there right now, and he mentions a guy in twelve sixty nine, Picard Magister. Um, and he was already working on this, but obviously not on the quantum side. Obviously, uh, yeah. Uh, hey, twelve sixty nine. Can you where do you know where he was, Jesse? Where was he part of the Western European movement? Or uh, well, he was. His name was Picard. That sounds like a Western name, I guess. Yeah. Uh, he was. Oh, he was a Franciscan monk. Um, wow. I I thought all of this magnetism stuff, like the real modern talk about all this, started with Coulomb in the uh, the eighteenth century. So. This is news to me. Are you kidding? This guy, um, Picard Magister, he's sitting in the middle of a siege when he's finishing off his his letter. It's called the Epistle de Magnet. Oh man! Um, Even he coined the uh, word magnet then. Uh, maybe he did. It it seems. I mean, it's far enough back. In you know? in my research, I heard the name magnet comes from the location where the stones were found. Like it was found in magnet. But maybe this guy. Oh, uh, interesting. Maybe this guy is the guy who dubbed it. Then could be. Maybe. Maybe, uh, you know, in this paper, it then goes to 1864 with uh, James Clerk Maxwell, the Scottish physicist. I mean, it, it's amazing how far back this stuff goes. It, it's like it, it's one of the long term stories of our civilization in a lot of ways, you know? Yeah. Electricity and magnetism. It's like quantum electrodynamics, right? That's the same family. This is the yeah. best, highest precision and accuracy science we have. We are so correct with this stuff. So correct yeah. to this. Uh, Feynman like was very famous for saying like he made a calculation. That's what he won the Nobel Prize for. Ultimately, he did this calculation that was correct to twelve decimal places. Wow! Like experimentally verified to twelve. This is the best thing we have, and so yeah, we've been working on it a long time, I guess. So that is why. Yeah, very long time. Um, yeah, you mentioned Maxwell. Maxwell was the guy who brought together all of the different pieces of the equations and put them together. And then he put a little correction on one of the equations. And so it's called Maxwell's equations. It's named after him for doing that. Okay. And Maxwell's equations are still correct today. They've stood 150 years worth of history and testing and stuff. They're, they're dead on. And uh, except for, of course, you know, some quantum corrections, which is beyond the scope of the talk today. But Maxwell's equations don't have a magnetic monopole term in them. Oh, interesting. And, and the equations beg for a monopole term. In fact, the four equations, one of the equations is literally, if you could say it in words, is there is no magnetic monopole. This is Gauss's law for magnetism. Of the four laws, it's Gauss's law yeah. of magnetism. It says there is a magnetic monopole. And I cooked up a bit of an analogy to explain to you how badly 
you want there to be a magnetic monopole. Okay. Okay. So Mr. and Mrs. White live in a house that's painted white. Okay. And attached, they have a white garage, and in it, they keep their black car. Okay. Now next door, Mr. and Mrs. Black live in their black house. Okay. And attached to their house is a black garage, and in it, they keep... A white car? No, nothing. They keep nothing because there are no magnetic monopoles. <laughs> oh, I see. That is like that is that is like uh, I think a pretty good analogy. That is how badly you want it to be there. Right. And this isn't just some guy cooking up a story. This is how the world works, and that is how badly we want it to be there. Well, so this is just pre Dirac. This is just after Maxwell. Yeah. People were like, it's kind of weird that there's a zero there, but okay, whatever. There's a zero there. I'm not going to lose sleep over it. And uh, Dirac really is the guy who put numbers into whether we should have monopoles or not. And, and people just keep trying to find them. You know, I mean, you got like the 70s, you got the 80s. I have a paper here from 2009 that says we found the, the magnetic monopole, but like none of these apparently stand up to, you know, I mean, uh, yeah. it's like people, they so need this to be true. That so they're like, badly. We found one. And then later it's like, actually, you didn't. I have a quote here by a string theorist named Joseph Polchinski, who says that finding a magnetic monopole is one of the safest bets that one can make about physics not yet seen. Oh, interesting. Yeah, like, people really expect there to be a monopole. Yeah. I asked my physics, I remember before I graduated, I went to all my physics professors one by one when I graduated my bachelor's, right? Yeah. I asked them, do you think there is one? And they're all like, yeah. Like, one of them was like, of course there is a monopole. That was his answer. Of course there would be. How could we not have one? The model is so elegant. Interesting. Yeah, and yet oh, there isn't one. That that brings something else up. For Dirac to be right, do you need one in the universe, or do you need several of these monopoles in the universe? Uh, for Dirac to be right, if you find one, you're right. I think what you're referring to is what's called Dirac's quantization. Yeah. And um, to explain what that is, so if you take electric charge, yeah, just any electric charge, uh, there is a minimum size of electric charge, and that's the electron. Yeah. You, you could not have half of an electron. This is the smallest possible size. Yeah. And that means you also can't have, for example, one and a half or two and a half because you always get them in terms of these electron packets. Yep. So what Dirac showed in his prediction in the 30s, I guess this was 1931, what he showed that if there is any magnetic monopole, if it exists at all, even if there's one in the entire universe, yep. that means that the electric charge is quantized. And since the electric charge is quantized, which means, as I said, you can't have one and a half or just half of it, um, it means it's consistent for there to be monopoles. Which, by the way, makes quantization in the universe and quantization that I know of in, like, say, music software the same thing. That's right. Yeah, it's all due to the same thing. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And since we know it's quantized, then that doesn't strike out the possibility of monopoles, but it hardly, it doesn't predict it, but it... It's kind of like a, it's an if statement in this direction, right? Like if monopoles exist, then we're quantized. So we're quantized. Does that mean monopoles yeah. have to exist? No, they could also not exist. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it, Basic logic there. Yeah. yeah. And also the math for that is very simple. Anybody with any kind of simple math could follow the derivation for that. If I recall correctly, I might be lying, but I remember it being very simple. Okay. Like if you want Jesse and I can go over it later and you'll be like, oh, that's pretty simple. Like, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but as as is for Dirac's way, I guess. Simple. Well, yeah, that's that's the Dirac, you know, magic, right? Yeah. Actually, you know what's interesting about this is that we keep talking about, you know, electricity and magnetism, and it, they're kind of the same thing. Yeah, they are. Uh, this or is like they're known mirrors as... of each other, you know? Pardon? 
they're kind of like they're not the same thing in that like I, I sort of see like you could make two diagrams one for electricity and one for magnetism and they would be almost the same yeah uh we could go on for a while about this there's what's known as the duality transformation so you can take a world where you have electric monopoles and no magnetic monopoles and you could switch a few things around and you could have a world where you have just magnetic monopoles and no electric monopoles and everything would work just fine. Electricity and magnetism behave exactly the same way yeah. and to each other. So I think the easiest way to think about it is if you have an electric field and you put an electric charge on that field, it'll go in a straight line. If you have a magnetic field and you put a, an electric charge on that field, then the electric charge will swirl around the magnetic field. And the converse is if you have a magnetic field and you put a magnetic monopole on there, it'll go in a straight line. But if you have an electric field and you put a magnetic monopole, then it'll swirl around it. Like they follow the same rules. The only thing that yeah. breaks the symmetry is that magnetic monopoles don't exist for some reason. That's the only thing or that they might or they might. Yeah. But yeah. in our everyday, I mean, everything you touch has electrons in it and like nothing has yeah. monopoles as far as we know. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about the experiments. So people since Dirac wrote his paper have been trying to find monopoles yes and there are a lot of people <laughs> it's it's kind of a holy grail i think if you found one yeah. you'd win a nobel prize because people have been looking for so long yeah i definitely think so there really are two different candidates that were really as far as i know like two candidates that were really um showed any promise into whether monopoles exist the first one was in 1975 and uh, a gentleman by the name of P. Buford Price, he was studying cosmic rays, and then just some really weird cosmic ray came in. And he says, oh, it must be a monopole. And he has, like he writes, you know, the essence of our observation is that we have found a particle of velocity at half the speed of light that ionized heavily and at a constant rate. And then he says, this constancy of ionization rate was first shown by Dirac to be a property of magnetic monopoles. Right, so there we go. This must be a monopole. Right. Uh, and eventually they actually they retract the statement and they found out that it could have just been like a platinum nucleus that decays, you know, one way. And so it's not necessarily a monopole. So right. That's, that's one. But, you know, stuff like that. I mean, these guys, I mean, aren't scientists trained to not jump the gun? He didn't jump the gun. You should read the paper. He says, you know, neither a Lee Wick abnormal nucleus nor a small charged black hole is consistent with the evidence. And he didn't know what else it could be. Okay. And it just took someone else later to say, oh, no, it could have been this platinum thing. Okay. And then it's like, oh, yeah, I guess it could have been a platinum thing. <laughs> Oops. Fair enough. Okay. And uh, the second paper was in 1982. I'm going to put both these papers up on the show notes as well because they're written. They're old enough that the English is also still pretty clear. This experiment in 1982, he had a superconducting loop, right? A superconducting wire. And if any, if you ever have a magnetic dipole, so a magnet, and it goes yeah. through any current carrying wire, so any wire that's in a loop, you can measure the current. And as the magnet goes through, the current will go one way. And then as the other side of the magnet goes through, the current will go the other way. So you would see like two directions of current. But if you had just a monopole, the current would go only one way. This is a very simple, simple experiment. So all you have to do is you take a, a loop and face it towards the sky and just pray to God that a monopole will go through your loop. And this is what they did in 1982. And the loop was only like five centimeters in diameter. And they measured for 151 days. And there's only one candidate in 151 days. That was probably a monopole on Valentine's Day in 1981. Okay? Interesting. Just one. 
and they said, you know what, we estimate based on our on time and off time, da da da, there's got to be one and a half events per year like this through a detector this size. Okay? So everyone. One and a half. One and a half per year. So maybe two every three years, that'll make it through a oh, detector I see. Okay. that size. They're, they're averaging, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so that was pretty promising. And the reason people don't believe that anymore is because this team, led by uh, this guy named Cabrera, they decided to build a way bigger, way more sophisticated detector that's 50 times the size and like 100 times more complicated with three dimensions, you know, all these different things. And they even were able to estimate, like, if it hit the wire instead of going through the loop, if it hit the wire on the edge of the loop, they'd have an estimate for it. Like, it was really much more sophisticated. And okay. it went on for two years and they saw nothing comparable. Oh, interesting. So they said, look, if the last thing, if it was, you know, one and a half a year in this small loop and this guy is 50 times bigger, you'd expect to see multiple per year. And they didn't see any after yeah. two years of running. So that's why they retracted their, you know, um, yeah. their candidate also. So that's why nobody thinks they've seen any because these only these are the only two that claim to see it. And they both took it back. Now, here's a question. Sure. If there's a monopole floating around somewhere, does that mean that somewhere in the universe there would be the opposite monopole? Or does that sort of become a dipole? So you mean, I suppose there's like a north somewhere? Does there necessarily have to be a south somewhere? A south somewhere else, yeah. I don't know. That's a good... Yeah. There's got to be a model out there that says it. I, I, I didn't find one. I didn't find one. I think the question would be, how come there are so few monopoles? Yeah. So the original models, the original models for the universe predicted there to be like many, 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 many. Yeah, like you know, and, sort of. and obviously there aren't, so they didn't know what it was. And then they said, well, maybe there was like a black hole right at the beginning and they all got sucked in and, and you know, I don't know. So if something like that is the reason, then maybe, you know, only a north got out and all the souths are in the hole for some reason. You know what I mean? Okay. But yeah. I, I don't know. There has there has to be a model that describes whether you need to have a south if there was a north. I don't know it. I didn't find anything like that in my research. So if anyone who's listening knows the answer. Yeah, you guys should call in. You know, we have this voicemail set up, this voicemail system, and we've gotten a lot of emails and, you know, tweets and stuff. Not a single voicemail yet. You know, drop us a voice. If you're in the States, drop us a voicemail. We'd like to hear from you. And if you're not in the States and you don't mind the long distance charge also, our number is 774-300-YAS. So there you go. That's our plug. <laughs> There's the plug. <laughs> <laughs> I think we've pretty much come to the end of our time to deal with this. Oh, wait. Jess, what are we talking about next week? Oh, yeah. Next week, we're talking about uh, genetic diversification. Oh, man. Okay. Uh, we'll figure this out. We'll figure this out. If anybody has any advice for us... Drop us a line. Do it now. Yeah, so we'll be in time for the next recording, okay? Yeah, let's uh, move on to the mailbag. Uh, we got a lot of emails about our Black Hole episode, obviously, um, especially since that was our big reveal on Facebook and to the web and to the world. But uh, a lot of people emailed about specifically about this, the universe being a hologram. So uh, in particular, we have an email from Zach from Cambridge, and he, he sends us a link saying, below is a link to a video of Leonard Susskind talking about the universe as a hologram in which he uses an information approach to black holes. He presents a compelling argument, and it's very clear and easy to understand. I really enjoyed the show. Keep up the good work. And he sends us a YouTube link. And we've both watched that YouTube link. Yeah, and, it's an uh, hour-long lecture, and you can't put it down. No, it's it's worth the hour of your life. I found it very, very, very interesting. You know, he makes his statement, you know, the universe is a hologram. And I'm like, are you kidding? And then by the time he gets to the end, you know, I buy it. Because he wasn't talking about a hologram like... 
in a Star Trek sense, you know? Yeah, he was talking about the optical hologram where you can save a three-dimensional image inside of a two-dimensional yeah. film plate, I guess you could say. Uh, yeah, it's a good watch, a good read. Uh, I think here, here's a few little bits that I enjoyed from the talk. One is that at the surface of a black hole, the temperature is a million, billion, billion, billion degrees, according to some calculations. And then another one is a, a fancy quote he says. He says, you know, quantum mechanics is always like this. You try to show that something doesn't happen by an experiment, and the experiment itself makes it happen. I found that very interesting. Yeah. Because, you know, that, that brings us back almost to the double slit experiment, right? Exactly. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's and exactly uh, it's funny how, like, these, these, like, what seem like little discrete little truths just keep bouncing back, you know, in, in, into your face as the more you look into physics the more little basics just keep appearing yeah the more it's like physics itself knows you're watching yeah which is weird we got another email from greg from montreal saying something similar he says here's another angle to the spaghettification in the black hole you guys talked about in your first episode Uh, and he sends us a link also talking about how there's um a quantum mechanics versus general relativity battle being waged based on whether or not you get spaghettified or whether or not you will burn at the million, billion, billion degree surface. So uh, I'll put that in the show notes as well. So you guys can watch the video, read the link, uh, and follow along at home. And by the way, one thing I do want to say is we really like getting stuff like this. Because if something makes a listener think of something else, we want to know about it. Yeah, you know? that's right. You guys should definitely call us or email us or whatever you can with any stuff like this. Because this is kind of why we are running this show in order to hear things like this. Oh, and in reference to something that I said last episode, Julian from Paris says that not everyone really knows who Stephen Hawking is and that saying that everyone does know was perhaps a little gauche. And I I think he's right. I think he's right. And I'd rather get schooled than stay wrong. (laughs) So if, you know, if something, you know, makes you guys go, hmm, we want to hear about that too, you know, Complaints are perfectly okay. Yeah, it's part of the peer review scientific method. Everybody has exactly. a voice, and we'll all come together and decide whether it's correct or not. Exactly. Yeah, so, you know, please please use your voice, you know. Give us a call. Give us an email. You can write us at emails at yetanotherscienceshow.com. Uh, if you're in the U.S., you can call and leave a voicemail at 774-300-YASS, which is 774-300-9277. You can also follow us on Twitter at Y-A-S-S podcast. Uh, you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash yet another science show. Yeah, all of these links and everything, including the show notes for everything we talked about today, is on our blog, which is at yet another science show.com. Thanks for listening. From Montreal, Quebec, I'm Jesse. And from Cambridge, Massachusetts, I'm Orad. See you next time.